Hey, Forge family. Last week, we looked at the last part of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote that he had the experience of the same spirit of faith that the psalmist had, that in the middle of afflictions, by faith, both stated that they trusted in God Almighty. And because of the spirit of faith, they both were moved to speak out, to proclaim to others about their experience. Paul especially wrote that he knew that the one who empowered resurrection in Jesus will do the same thing for him and for us. Resurrection awaits. The Corinthians got it. Their experience of God's grace expanded and grew exponentially until there was an overflow of praise to God. Paul longs for the Corinthian ecclesias to get the phrase, we do not lose heart. He wrote it twice in the same chapter. His grip on courage, on peace, in the middle of, of, of pressures and afflictions, they, they pointed him into 13 different contrasting statements, which began in chapter 4, 16, and runs to chapter 5, verse 9. Here are the ones we looked at last week. There's the outer man and the inner man, the wasting away and the being renewed, the, the slight and beyond measure, momentary and eternal, affliction and glory, what can be seen and what cannot be seen. Further, Paul wrote of the inner man, the inner woman, being rebuilt, being remade in the likeness of Jesus. That process will be utterly alien to those whose mind is blinded by the God of this age. But to those destined for heaven, that transformation process is worth everything. Let's pray. God who is spirit, God of the unseen, we are so limited in our five dimensions. Mathematics can prove 18 dimensions, but we can't experience them. You are an awesome creator and sustainer, and we trust that you are fitting us out for heaven. Please keep reconstructing us in the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Kent Hughes used an illustration that I really resonate with. When Spain, the nation of Spain, had expended, extended her, her conquests to the ends of the then-known world and controlled both sides of the Mediterranean at the Straits of Gibraltar, her coinage, the coins that they, they stamped and released, her coins proudly pictured the fabled Gates of Hercules, the massive stone structures of the Rock of Gibraltar, inscribed with the words in Latin, ne plus ultra, which in English is no more beyond. They believed that those pillars gated the edge of the world. But in 1492, Christopher Columbus sailed out those gates to the Americas, discovering the new world. Spain humbled herself and recast her coins with the phrase plus ultra, meaning more beyond, mas allá. We have come some ways into understanding the New Covenant ministry, but there's more beyond. Open your 2 Corinthians texts, and we will begin with chapter 5, verse, verses 1 to 4. There should have been no chapter break there. It's just an arbitrary thing by some editorial committee. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5 is the extension of the heart of Paul, beginning in verse 16. Of chapter 4. So we go on. 
For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here Paul added another five contrasting statements. You have a temporary tent-like house in contrast to the building from God. We have earthly and heavenly. We have destroyed and eternal. We have stripped naked versus clothed. We have morality and life. Mortality, excuse me, mortality and life. Paul has mixed his metaphors. He began with describing our present bodies as tents. Now, there's some sources that say that Paul was a tent maker. Now, we know that Paul was a Pharisee, and to be a Pharisee, there are two other additional qualifications. He had to be married, and he had to have a professional craft that he practiced. So if he was indeed a tent maker, that he would have been weaving and stitching the black wool of goats into capacious tents used all over the known world. Others say that Paul was a saddle maker, a leather worker, a, custom, a man who did custom leather work, and that he worked that craft for two and a half years when he was in the desert south of Damascus after his conversion on the Damascus Road. Now, when you see Paul, ask him, which was it, tents or saddles? Okay, But it's natural here, if you will, for him to choose such an image. The Greek word kataluthē is used by Paul to describe the striking of a tent, dropping it into the dust from which it would be uh, flattened, folded, rolled up, tied, and strapped to the back of a beast of burden to go down the road to the next spot where the tent would be set up. When I was 12 years old, I was in Boy Scouts and was chosen to compete at a camporee, a, a scouting skills competition in the northern Virginia region. We camped up against the fence around the CIA headquarters outside Langley, Virginia. It was wooded with pine and locust trees, festooned with poison ivy and thorns. We learned to stay on the trails. Our troop was assigned an open space, backed up to forest and trail, and we set up pup tents, two-man tents that had guy ropes on each end that, that you know, tensioned the t- against the tent poles, kept the, kept the tent up, and then there were pegs on all sides. That first night was humid, steamy, hard-to-sleep weather. An hour after we had been bed-checked by the leaders, we heard light footsteps around the tent. Suddenly, The guy ropes on each tent were cut, dropping the tent on top of us, making it difficult to even get out, much less being able to do it quickly. We had been punked by another troop. We could hear them laughing as they ran away. The next morning, scouts of Troop 681 laid their plans to make sure that never happened again. So after supper, you know, we laid out trip wires, trip lines to which had been on which had been strung empty coke cans partially filled with gravel. As the night closed in, we were bed checked and the leaders withdrew. 
We snuck out and spread our early warning system across access trails around us and crawled into our tents. Now, each of us had collected six or eight unopened pine cones. They weighed somewhere between a baseball and a softball, and they had spikes on them. We kind of kept quiet, expecting another raid. And sure enough, we heard the rattle of the Coke cans, and the game was on. We leaped to our feet and hurled those pine cones down the various trails. The sound of solid hits and howls made it worth the efforts. Plus, the retreating scouts got snarled in the poison ivy and thorn thickets. Partially dressed leaders stumbled into our silent campsite, only hearing the retreating raiding party. We grinning scouts had a hard time falling asleep that night with the adrenaline-testosterone surge. In the morning, I carefully helped retrieve the trip lines and the coke cans, getting away from any poison oak, things like that. And there on the ground, I found a brand new Boy Scout knife. I still have it. Now, the point of that memory is that when our tree, excuse me, our, our tents are collapsed, and that's what Paul uses the word, you know, when our, our, tents are, our tents are struck down. When our guy ropes are cut, down comes the tent. See, that's what Paul wrote about. And when that happens, we will be given a building from God to house us, a building not made with hands. John 14, 2 records these words that Jesus spoke. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Now here, the image of Jesus, imagery he's using, is a dwelling place. With Paul, the imagery is a temporary covering. Paul is leading up to the contrast of the mortal body, which is temporary, and the imperishable, immortal resurrection body. The word groan is the same word used to describe the groans of all creation that waits for its creator to release it from the bondage of the fall. Believers groan too, quote, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Unquote. The word groan is also used of Holy Spirit, who helps us in our weakness and groans on our behalf when words are exhausted and the need is so deep that it exceeds language. Paul says we groan because we don't want to be naked, unclothed, for we will long to be clothed with that eternal stuff. For when we put it on, we will not be naked. We will not be a disembodied spirit that wanders. We will not be absorbed into the deity. We will not be simply extinguished. We will be clothed with an eternal body so that we can serve and adore God. This being... So, covered up with an eternal body is the completion of our salvation. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal push, puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Unquote. Here in verse 4, he wrote that that which is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And that life transcends the natural. It is supernatural life. C.S. Lewis described our longing for a heavenly dwelling. 
Quote, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. Unquote. There are those who teach that here, Paul was saying that we receive our resurrection body immediately at death. When we try and wrap our minds around that and the future promised bodily resurrection of First, Corinth, uh, First Thessalonians, excuse me, we can become confused. Uh, the teachings seem to conflict. However, we're stuck in time. Heaven is not in time. Heaven is eternal. And it is one eternal now. A present tense that goes on forever. Both the immediate reception of a resurrection body and a future bodily resurrection. They, they're, they're both possible in the immediate present now. So when we are clothed with our resurrection bodies... We will get to see how and when that happens. Either case, the Lord has prepared a way for us. Verse 5 says, Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Now the very purpose which God has laid out for us is the completion of redemption, the homecoming of his sons and daughters, and as a guarantee for his promises that will come to pass, he, the Father, has given us the pledge of Holy Spirit. The word pledge is Erebon in Greek. It speaks of a deposit against a future payout or purchase, something given as surety, an installment of the life to come, or an engagement ring that guarantees marriage. Holy Spirit is God the Father's engagement ring for the bride. The gift of Holy Spirit is the one empirical evidence that states that God will keep his promises. The guarantee that Holy Spirit represents is set against the fact that Christ has not yet come to gather the saints, living and dead into his arms. See, now we can say with his pledge of full renovation, full reconstruction of our inner man, of our inner woman, there is more ahead of us. There is more beyond in verses 6 to 9, Paul wrote of what we all want. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say, and I prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also we have our as, a, as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. The phrases that speak of good courage are parallel to what Paul wrote twice in chapter 4. He said, we do, we do not lose heart. But here in chapter 5, he says, we are always of good courage. Lay them side by side, they say the same thing. He follows with the statement that when we are at home with the body, alive, waiting for the upward call of Christ, we are absent from the Lord. And Paul can say that with authority because he walks by faith, not by sight. 
And then his personal choice kicks in. He would rather be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. He further says, in whichever state he's in, his ambition, his goal, his aim is to be pleasing to the Lord. Verse 10 summarizes why, whenever, whether on earth or in, or in heaven, we must be ready to stand before the Lord. Quote, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Unquote. There's, there are those teachers who put the timing of this compulsory appearance of all believers somewhere in the third year of the tribulation on earth. Well, that sends a chill through any teaching right there. But remember, we will be those believers having been resurrected and gathered to heaven prior to the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, our sins are not the issue. Our sins have been washed away, forgiven, forgotten, as far as the east is from the west and plunged into the deepest sea and left there. The shed blood of Christ on the cross dealt with sin forever. The issue is not sin. You are a son or a daughter of God. The issue is, what did you do with your faith in Christ? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, quote, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be, become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Jesus stood before the Bema. That's the Greek word for the judgment seat. Okay, Jesus stood before the Bema, the judgment seat of Pilate. Paul stood before the Bema, the judgment seat of Gallio in Corinth. He will receive, he, you know, both of them received us, you know, if you will, judgment from the Bema. <clears throat> we will stand before the Bema of Christ as he sits and judges the deeds of all believers, and we will receive what we are due. What we did in the name of Jesus, in and for the kingdom of God, by faith or by the flesh, will all be tested. That testing will be as with fire. The works which are genuine, true, real, honest, pure, righteous, will go through testing and shine. The works that were done to enhance our standing, to enhance our wallet, to increase our Facebook followers, to enhance our pleasure, to enhance our feel-good stuff, unrelated to Holy Spirit and walking by faith. That, now that stuff is the, are the, the works of the flesh. That will be tested and consumed as if by fire. As I said, attendance here at that judgment seat of Christ is not optional. Now this judgment seat of Christ is not the great white throne judgment of all mankind, of, of those who do not Embrace the name of Jesus. That's that appears much later in the book of Revelation. Okay, so while we're going to be required to appear before the Lord, each of us ourselves, we will see what will be manifested, what appears before each of us that the Lord approves or removes. Some of what He did, we did in Jesus' name, 
will be eternal. Some works will pass away due to motives, obedience, the source of power we drew on to accomplish anything. Paul has made it his end goal to be pleasing to Christ. Forge family, so should we. The judgment seat of Christ is an incentive, not a threat. It will give us the opportunity to put on display the grace of God at work in and through us to the praise of the Father. It will also pave the way to service and leadership in eternity. There is more beyond. Let's pray. Lord of redemption, you called us from our sin. And you are preparing us for the end game, the resurrection of the body into your presence to a completed salvation. Thank you. Praise you. We long for the day when we will be with you. Thank you for the pledge of Holy Spirit that makes your promises trustworthy. We would be of good courage. Thank you now for the judgment seat of Christ. Thank you that it will display the works of faith in mighty ways. Some of those will have been accomplished in secret. Some in day-to-day -day faith and obedience, and some on a bigger stage. We would be a company of believers that set out to be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, God bless you. We'll see you soon.